Now, let's begin uh, with a couple of uh, clarifications and corrections. <clears throat> if you take the map in this handout uh, of Jerusalem or of uh, Palestine, you'll notice that north of Jerusalem, you can find Mizpah outlined very clearly, a little square around it. Uh, last time I was talking <clears throat> about Mizpah and the Mizpah benediction. This is not the place where the Mizpah benediction was recited. So I need to correct that. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I had forgotten that the Mizpah where Jacob and Laban meet in Genesis thirty-one forty-nine, is the Mizpah of the Transjordan. So it's on the other side of the Jordan River, which makes sense. <clears throat> Jacob coming down from Aramea or from Syria, he would have come down on the east side of the Jordan and eventually crossed over uh, subsequently. So <clears throat> uh, this Mizpah, <clears throat> which I identified last week is not the Mizpah where the Mizpah benediction was recited. That's on the other side and is not shown on your map. Now, there was also a question about when Nebuchadnezzar experienced his madness, where that would fit into uh, the paradigm of his life. And I suggested it was sometime in the 570s. And in fact, in looking in more detail at that interesting question, Uh, Most uh, conservative scholars argue that it occurred somewhere after 573 B.C., so I was in the ballpark. Nebuchadnezzar dies in 562, so that period after 573 is suggested as the most likely era of his career in which uh, he may have uh, been eating grass with the cows in the fields. Now, this evening, we want to look at chapters 40 and 41 of Jeremiah. A very concise and succinct summary of which is found in 2 Kings 25, 22 to 26. You might want to look at that sometime later for comparison purposes. Quite interesting uh, condensation of Uh, two chapters of fairly detailed information here in the book of Jeremiah. Now, the structure of this section, namely chapters 40 and 41, I have labeled the narrative epilogue. That is, the epilogic closure of the life and times of Jeremiah. Now, I used the term closure last week, but here... It is closure beyond the fall of Jerusalem. And these, this narrative and what follows it in chapters 42 to 45, this narrative complements and supplements the closure to Jeremiah's life at the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, we noted that uh, last time with the mirror-like narrative of Jeremiah's deliverance in chapters 35, 11 to 14, and Ebed melechs deliverance in chapter 35, 15 to 18. So you'll notice I'm making a distinction, a distinction between what closes off the career of Jeremiah and Ebed melech in terms of their deliverance from the destruction of Jerusalem That is the end of 39 and the end of the narrative to that point. However, the narrative continues here in chapter 40 
as an additional or supplemental closure, and it is the closure of the career of Jeremiah beyond the fall of Jerusalem. Now, when we look at the structure of uh, chapter 40 and 41, uh, we notice uh, two very interesting framing or bracketing paradigms. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 40 and then look at verse 6 of this same 40th chapter, uh, is there something that you pick up there which is duplicated, that jump right out at you? Any suggestions yet? Ah, it's easier than that. (coughs) Look for a name. What's the first? Go ahead, Ben. Jeremiah. Jeremiah, correct. The framing or bracketing pattern here is the name Jeremiah. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later, but you'll notice that it is framed by the name of the prophet. Now, in verse 7, you have a very long phrase. We're going to only pick up a few of words to make our point, but a very long phrase that reoccurs at the end of chapter 41. So compare 40, verse 7, with 41, verse 18. And let's see if you can come up with the framing device there. Good. The son of Ahikam. Ahikam, uh huh. And in fact, it goes on beyond that. Appointed governor over the land by Nebuchadnezzar. It's a very long phrase. So you can simply say Gedaliah over the land or something like that, but you'll notice that it is duplicated. So here's a framing paradigm which includes Gedaliah's governorship. Now I'm going to label uh, the frame between 41 and verse 6, Act 1 of this narrative epilogue. And I'm going to label chapter 40, verse 7 to 41, 18, Act 2. Now, there's something very interesting about the fact that Act 2 does not contain the name Jeremiah. In this frame, which includes Gedaliah at the beginning and end, Jeremiah is not named, nor is he present in the narrative. In my opinion, that is a narrative antithesis or a narrative contrast. Something is going on in the way this two-chapter portion of the epilogue has been constructed in order to place a contrast between Jeremiah and those who are not Jeremiah or action in which Jeremiah is present and action in which Jeremiah is not present. Now, having made that suggestion, there are actually in Act 2 three scenes. Each of these scenes deals with the character 
that dominates that scene. For instance, scene one is dominated by Gedaliah, the government governor. <clears throat> it extends to chapter 41, verse 2, plus or minus, <clears throat> and is followed by scene two, which is dominated by Ishmael. There's some overlap with the Ishmael scene from 41.1 to 41.15, plus or minus, and scene three is dominated by the final character in this act, Johanan, chapter 41, verse 11 to 18. In other words, these three major characters who are described and enlarged in terms of characterization in 40, verse 7 through 41, 18, dominate the progress of the narrative in this unit. And as that unfolds, Jeremiah is not present in the drama. He is off stage, off camera, not at the center of the spotlight. There is a reason for that. The drama proceeds in antithesis to himself. All right, there's one other thing to note You will notice that in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 40, the name Lord or Lord God is invoked several times. You may notice that it is invoked by the Babylonian captain of the bodyguard, namely Nebuchadnezzar. And you may wonder, why is he invoking the name of the Lord God of Israel? Because he's a practitioner of realpolitik. He knows how to emphasize political acceptable speech. He is politically correct when he speaks to Jews. So he knows who they call their God, and he uses that lingo. He's not prophesying here or speaking here as a believer. He is simply using the language of the people whom he has conquered. And he's politician enough to step into their shoes for the sake of his own political points. All right, but the name Lord God here is uh, pronounced, and it is pronounced in accuracy. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is an accurate reporter of what Jeremiah had prophesied. You will notice that in Act 2, that is in uh, verses 7 of chapter 40 through 18 of 41, the name of God is never invoked. He is absent from the narrative except for verse 5 of chapter 41 when the incidental name of the house of the Lord is listed. But there is no invoking or uh, affirmation of God's name in that second act of this epilogue. I will come back to, uh, to flesh out a little more what is at issue here with this narrative development. But uh, let's begin with the location of Jeremiah in verse 14 of chapter 39. Where is he? He's at the house of Gedaliah. And where is the house of Gedaliah? And how do you know? Because it was released to him. And where is his house? And how do you know where his house is? It's in Jerusalem. No, it is not in Jerusalem. Because he is not going to be governor in Jerusalem of a burned over city, charred over ashes. 
It's Mizpah. How do you know that? <laughs> All right. It's in verse 6 of chapter 40 that we know where Gedaliah's house is. So when he is released to Gedaliah's house in chapter 39, he is at Mizpah. And you can see the location of Mizpah, as you've already noted it, on the map that you have in your packet. Where is Jeremiah in chapter 40, verse 1? He's in Ramah. Where is Ramah? Now take a look at your map again. No, it's not in Jerusalem, though I know why. Between Jerusalem and Mista. Thank you. Yes. Now, uh, had you you said uh, Jerusalem, uh, there is the uh, tomb of Rachel near Bethlehem, which confuses this, but we'll leave that. Uh, on the side for the moment because we're not talking about the birth of Jesus right now. Uh, This Mizpah, as you can see from your map, is, as Ben pointed out, between Jerusalem and Mizpah. All right, now, we have a problem, don't we? We have um, Jeremiah released to Mizpah at the end of 39, so he's in the house of Gedaliah there. But when chapter 40 opens, he's in Ramah, And he is in, he's in chains. He's been chained up with the rest of the captives ready to go off to exile. We've got a dilemma, don't we? Here he's been released from captivity or from the court of the bodyguard, and that means he's been free to go go to the house of Gedaliah in Mizpah, but in chapter 40, verse 1, he's not free to go to the house of Gedaliah. He's not even free from the house. He's been pounded up in chains. Yes. He's released from the court of guard in Jerusalem to go to Gedaliah's house in Mizpah. if you were a liberal you'd solve this by saying see the later redactor came in and opened up chapter 40 didn't know where he was now the most reasonable solution here is that a mistake had been made between the time Jeremiah was released in Jerusalem to go to Mizpah and when he appears in chains and fetters at the opening of chapter 40 He is mistakenly then rounded up with some other exiles to Babylon at the staging area, Rama. You might notice in this connection, chapter 31, verse 15, you might make a note of that, uh, Rama, where Rachel is weeping for her children, the staging area for the deportation of the exiles after the collapse of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, who had released him, also discovers the error and releases him again. So the scenario that makes consistency out of this is that somehow Jeremiah was identified with the other exiles and put back into chains. And Nebuchadnezzar discovered that error and released him again. 
Now, in support of that, namely that a mistake was made and that he was released again, notice verse 5. Jeremiah was not going back. Going back where? Going back to Mizpah to get a liar, yes, from which he had been chained and bound. So there's a suggestion in the verb that's used there that, in fact, our reconstruction here, uh, namely that he had mistakenly been chained and uh, put in the staging area to go off to Babylon, is an accurate uh, uh, implication from the narrative. The second thing is in the end of that fifth verse. What does Zemazaradan do at the end of that verse? Let him go. Let him go. Gives him a gift. He gives him a gift. Why would he give him a gift? <laughs> well, my sincere apologies, Mr. Jeremiah. We seized you by mistake. I had already let you go once. Now here, here is. Uh, <clears throat> Here's a subscription to the Babylonian Times on your way up, back up, or whatever. In other words, you get the point. The, the gift and the ration suggests the compensation for the mistake, for the error in judgment. All right, so from within the text, we can support an explanation of a, shall we say, double release of Jeremiah. <clears throat> now, in that fifth verse... We have the first notice of what we noted in verse 6, namely that Gedaliah has been appointed governor over uh, the remainder of uh, Judah, what's left of the people in the land by Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Why Gedaliah? He's the son of whom, Loretta? Ahikam. And Ahikam is the son of whom? Shaphan. Shaphan. And who is Shaphan? You're doing well, right? I'm just reading the text. <laughs> now I have to stop because it doesn't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> who is Shaphan? Anyone? He is probably the chief scribe of the temple during the reign of King Josiah. And how many sons does he have? We know one already. Loretta's told us one, Ahikam. I think there were three. There are three of them, Kay, correct. I don't know who they were. You don't know who they are, but you know that there are three. All right. Who knows the names of the other two? I do, okay, but, but, but you're the ones I'm asking the question of. <laughs> okay, the second one is Elisa, who was one of the diplomatic couriers who took a letter to the exiles from uh, Jeremiah uh, in Babylon so after uh, Jehoiakim had been carried off. So we have um, we have a Hikam, we have Elisa, and then we have uh, Gemariah, the third one. All right, now 
Gedaliah here is the grandson of this prominent Jerusalem family. The chief scribe of the temple and his sons and the family line would have a, a position of respect and high status because of the role that they've held in the religion of the temple. So that's one reason that Gedaliah may have been tabbed for this role. Now, the second reason is that Gedaliah and the family from which he arises is pro-Jeremiah. And obviously, Nebuchadnezzar is pro-Jeremiah too. How so? How do we know this? Well, because... The father, Ahikam, of Gedaliah, had helped Jeremiah. Specifically, helped Jeremiah when? Is that when he was in one of the pits? Not in the pits, no. But his life was in danger. His life was in danger because Jehoiakim had killed somebody else. Who had Jehoiakim executed? Uriah. Uriah. And he was a what? What was his job? Is he a servant of the king? He's a prophet. Yes, he's a prophet like Jeremiah. And he flees to Egypt, is extradited. Brought back and executed by Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim cuts him down with his own sword. All right, now at the end of that chapter, and that story is in chapter 26, at the end of that chapter, Ahikam protects Jeremiah. So the family is pro-Jeremiah. Pro-Jeremiah means, okay, you're friendly to Nebuchadnezzar. And that's another reason he would have come to the attention of the king of Babylon. And the third reason, of course, is if he's pro-Jeremiah, then he's pro-Babylonian because Jeremiah was pro-Babylonian in the sense that he urged the city of Jerusalem to surrender to the Babylonians because the word of the Lord had come to him saying that the city will be spared if you surrender to the king of Babylon. Right, for these three reasons, then, we see a consistent pattern of friendliness in Gedaliah, presumed friendliness in Gedaliah, because of his association with Jeremiah and the message of Jeremiah, all of which Nebuchadnezzar knows from verses 2 to 3 of chapter 40. Therefore, he's got a person whom he thinks is friendly to himself and to his conquest, excuse me, his conquest of Judah. And Gedaliah appears to be a appropriate choice, as we shall note. All right, so Gedaliah has come into this position because he has commended himself by reputation to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, in verse 9... We have the first speech of Gedaliah. And as you hold your finger there, 
Now, I'd like you to turn back to chapter 27 for a moment. And whoever finds it, if you'd read verse 12 and verse 17 for us. Jeremiah 27, verse 12, and then verse 17. I spoke words like all those to Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, Bring your necks unto the oak of the king of Babylon, and serve him and his people, and live. Do not listen to them serve the king of Babylon, and live. Why should this city become a ruin? Now, in verse 9 of 40, we have the the phrase, Do not be afraid of serving the Chaldeans. Serve the king of Babylon, that it may go well with you. We have an echo here in Gedaliah's speech to the remnant that's in Judah of what Jeremiah had prophesied. This reinforces the attachment of Gedaliah and the family of Shaphan to the message of Jeremiah and implicitly to the person of Jeremiah. Not only the person of the one who delivered the message, but the message itself of the person who delivered it. All right, so building this case here for the attachment of Gedaliah and his family uh, to Jeremiah and to his message. Now, the second speech, or the speech continues in verse 10 of uh, chapter 40, suggesting a sequence of seasons. What seasons? Or what season? Actually, there are seasons, plural here, one implied. Yes, very good, Loretta. Yes. In other words, the summer season is the time for planting and gathering, etc., and then harvesting coming after the summer blooming and full growth, etc. So here is Gedaliah encouraging them to work on the land, to work through the summer months, and then to harvest the fruits of the labor when the harvest season comes uh, in the fall. Now this gives us an insight into the character of Gedaliah, though you may not uh, notice it. It shows him to be a eudaimonistic individual. Now what's eudaimonism? Eudaimonism is a kindly spirit, a benevolent attitude, an encouraging disposition. And as governor of Judah, he is encouraging these people left behind to, to be fruitful, be productive. plant the land, harvest the land, and gather in the fruits of your labor so that it will be well with you. And he gives this little encouragement speech indicating that he wishes them well in doing that. This is benevolence in the sense of not giving them anything, but wishing them well and encouraging them in their labors of planting and uh, harvesting the, the fruit of the ground. So, We have a little cameo here of Gedaliah as a benevolent ruler, a benevolent governor, someone who wants to encourage his subjects in being productive so that they can survive, obviously, after the devastation of war. 
Now, in verse 11, we have a little interlude. From what region are these Jews returning? Countries are listed there. What region is that? So we call it the what? The Transjordan. Very good. So it's east of the Jordan, Transjordan. They're coming back and they're coming back to uh, Judah, suggesting that what has happened? Why did they leave Judah and go to the Transjordan? Because of the army of Babylon, right? So they're coming back. Why? No, why? Not no, primarily. Not they are coming back because of Gedaliah, but something else has happened. The war is over, and where is Nebuchadnezzar's army? Yeah, it's gone back to Babylon. Right. So the withdrawal of the army allows them to see that okay, we can. We're not refugees anymore. We go back to our homeland. So they're returning as a result of the lifting. Not only the siege and the end of the destruction, but the fact that the land can now be repopulated by those who had left it to save their skin. Now, verse um, 3 of chapter 41 indicates that not all of the Babylonian soldiers had gone back to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar leaves a small garrison of armed men, Behind, in order to make sure that things are done according to his own instructions and the peace is kept. Now that brings us then to, excuse me, verse 14, and Baalus, the king of Ammon, and this fascinating discovery which you have in your packet, namely the discovery of the so called Baalus seal. Now, this is a a seal like uh, we've seen the bulli, uh, something for sealing documents with wax, as the case may be. It was discovered in the Jordanian region, which is the modern equivalent of ancient Ammon, about 1999. So it's a very recent discovery, but it's not the first time that a... Uh, object was discovered that had the name of Baalus on it. You'll notice on the right-hand side of that page the middle figure, uh, which is a, uh, a, a impression seal, probably used as a cork in an olive jar or a wine vat. Uh, that seal always also has the name of Baalus, says belonging to Milcom or servant of Baalus. <clears throat> that one was discovered in 1984. Now, this middle one, this large one that you see in the middle of the page, which has the winged sphinx in the center of the uh, seal, is separated by double lines. You'll notice the double lines above the wing and the head of the sphinx and then below the feet of the sphinx. That double line separates the lines of the text. Now, you're reading this text from uh, right to left. And we'll begin with the text which is in the middle, that is, 
around the Sphinx figure. Starting on the right-hand side, you have the letter M, then you have the letter L, and then over on the left-hand side, opposite the shoulder of the Sphinx, you have the letter K, M-L-K. Now, if we put in two E's, what do we have? We have M-E-L-E-K. And you already know what that word means. Even though here it is in Ammonite, you already know what that word means in Hebrew, don't you? What does it mean, Ben? You're nodding your head. It means king. So you just read Ammonite or Aramaic. <laughs> All right, now it looks very strange. <clears throat> and of course, you have to be trained to read this early uh, Semitic script. <clears throat> but there's a place where you can see it fall out easily, and as the translation up above it gives you that second line, is translated king of. Now, above the double line at the top is the name Baalis, which is translated there in the English above the figure, and below the double line at the bottom of the figure is a reconstruction of what the author of this article uh, believes is Benai Amon meaning sons of Ammon, which is exactly what you read in uh, Jeremiah 40, verse 14. Baalus, the king of the sons of Ammon. Now, there's no claim that, in fact, this is uh, written from the biblical point of view. It's just simply the title of the king of the sons of Ammon, which occurs in the text in the scriptures, but also is verified by this seal which was discovered and has been translated to, sh- to indicate that this person uh, really existed. Incidentally, the discovery of these two seals, the one in 1984, the one in 1999, plus or minus, is the first time this name has been found outside the Bible. And, of course, old liberals used to say, aha, you see, here's a person nobody's ever heard of, therefore he's been invented. He's a mythical figure, but lo and behold, the archaeologist Spade turns up his name. So here it is, and you can see it uh, endorsing or confirming the accuracy of the biblical text. Now, uh, any questions about that? All right, now, why... Plot Gedaliah's death. <clears throat> what do you think? Ben? Okay, so if you suppress the governor, then you... Uh, you, you don't allow the nation to rejuvenate or to be, so to speak, reborn, okay? All right, anything else? Who killed him? Ishmael. Why would Ishmael want Gedaliah dead? The king... Told him to. The king told him to. Baalus told him to. Pete? They want to be subject to uh, to uh, Babylon. They want to they want to have a coalition there. Okay. All right. So the suggestion that 
The Ammonites don't want to be subject to Babylon. They're anti-Babylonian. Gedaliah is pro-Babylonian. These are anti-Babylonian. But why use Ishmael as your puppet? Why recruit him? The clue is in verse 1 of the next chapter. Let's see if you can pick out the clue. Did he want his position? Why would he want his position, Loretta? Because he was jealous. Because he was jealous? Why was he jealous? But what's in that verse that suggests to you that there may be a reason for his jealousy? You're doing so very well. You said you were reading the text before. He's the royal family. He is of the royal family, which means he's what? Prince, maybe. He's a prince. Descended from... If he's of the royal family, of what tribe is he? Come on, Loretta. I don't know. What tribe is he? If he's of the royal family, what tribe? Judah. Yeah, and what family? You got me. Who's the first? David? Yeah, he's a Davidite, isn't he? Yeah. There's your clue. All right, so here's a royal prince who is a Davidide. Is Gedaliah a Davidide? No, he's a Shaphanite, which means he may be a Levite or descended from a Levite line. We're not really told what specific tribe he comes from, but it's likely that because his father was scribe, it comes out of the Levitical or priestly line. But here is the conflict. As Loretta perceives so very well, he's jealous. He's jealous because he believes he should have that role. And Bala says, well, of course you should have that role. And if you go back there and do my dirty work for you, I'll make you blah, 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 blah. All right. So the collusion between the two of them is serving the political purpose of, as Pete pointed out, Bayless, who is involved in an anti-Babylonian coalition. In fact, at the time when Nebuchadnezzar is besieging Jerusalem, the Ammonites are also in rebellion against Babylon, even as Zedekiah is in rebellion against Babylon. And those two passages, which I placed beside Bala's king of Ammon in verse 14, will indicate to you the... uh, the description, not only of the coalition, which you find in 27.3 of Jeremiah, but also what was going on in terms of the rebellion in Ezekiel 21.18-32. Putting this all together then, Gedaliah is a traitor. In the eyes of Ishmael, he has betrayed the royal line of Judah. The line that has the right to rule. Ishmael himself <clears throat> believes that he's entitled to that. He's certainly entitled to remove the usurper or the one whom he regards as the usurper. Now, the fact that the Babylonian army is gone, <clears throat> he's not afraid of the garrison that's left behind. Obviously, not afraid of them because he actually kills them all. Shrewd enough 
competent enough, ruthless enough to get rid of any potential opposition which may have come from the remains of the Babylonian garrison and at the same time take out Gedaliah. All right, so this assassination plot is hatched in an international intrigue. And a useful idiot, namely Ishmael, is the pawn of the Ammonite king in his broader scheme to bring down Babylonian influence in the Levant. Not only was Ammon involved in this coalition against Babylon, also Edom was involved in it, Moab was involved in it, and Tyre and Phoenicia were involved in it. Consequently, if Baalus is the kingpin now that Zedekiah has been captured and taken off to Babylon, Baalus is orchestrating the next move in the attempt to dislodge that Babylonian influence and the annual tributes and taxes that they have to send to Babylon year after year after year. And in order to do that, he needs his own man in Judah. And Ishmael is all too happy to be the man of the hour. Which brings us to verse 16. Now the assassin's knife has not, or the assassin's sword has not fallen yet. But we have a dilemma here in this 16th verse. The dilemma is... that Gedaliah is told that Ishmael is determined to kill him. But Gedaliah lives like so many rulers in the, fab, in the, in the mythical world of denial. The doomsayer, Johanan, cannot be right. Surely there is no danger. I will survive. We will survive. We will get by. I am the governor of Judah, the governor of Judah, the governor of Judah am I. You hear a faint echo there? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. This presumption, presumption upon the fact that why no one would dare attack me or us. No, that fella, he's just a nice guy. And I'll even have him to dinner with me in the governor's palace. And we'll sit down and eat bread together. And Ishmael exploits the foolish presumption of the governor of Judah. He exploits the denial. He exploits the naivete. He uses his status. He's a royal prince, remember. He uses his family line. He's a Davidite, remember. He uses his bloodline. He uses his tribal pedigree 
to get as close to the governor as he can to slit his throat. And in addition to exploiting the naivete and the presumptuous denial of Gedaliah, he exploits the trust that Gedaliah has in him. His erstwhile reliability, his pretended loyalty. Because, well, he's like me. He's in the royal ruling class. I mean, I finally made it, though I don't have the bloodline. I'm Gedaliah the governor, and this, this guy, he is the bloodline, and I certainly like to rub shoulders with people who have got the right pedigree. And Ishmael loves it. He loves this sucker. He loves this guy that he can snooker with his official position. He may, in fact, have been an official in Zedekiah's administration. And thus, he was known to get a lie into his family. And so he's exploiting that previous relationship as well. But come on, Denison. Aren't you supposed to be instinctively defending your life? Protecting yourself? Isn't self-defense a biblical mandate? Huh? What's the matter with this guy? Well, Johanan approaches him with a kind of self-styled assassination plot that makes Johanan the very morph of Ishmael himself. And Gedaliah recoils from it. And rightly so. But having been alerted to the possibility of the plot, having been warned that he was in danger, that his life was in danger of being forfeit, wouldn't you think that he would smart up and try to protect himself? Guard his role preserve his rulership from destruction, not allow himself to be deceived or tricked or exploited by royal blood or good bread. Wouldn't you think? You would think it, but Gedaliah, though he's benevolent, he's a benevolent fool. And though he's eudaimonistic, he doesn't know when he's being played. He doesn't know when he's being used. He always thinks that the guy that's after him is just his good time buddy, just like Ishmael is my good time buddy and Ishmael is working him to a fairly well. And Gedaliah just doesn't get it. He doesn't get it even to the point of preserving his own life. So with this tragic death, as we grieve over Gedaliah's foolishness, we realize that his foolishness was what got him killed. 
when he should have instinctually recoiled at the warning and said at least, okay, I want my bodyguards around me 24-7. I want them watching this guy. I'm going to keep my cameras on him all the time. And you better believe they're not going to get any visas into my uh, governor's palace. But no, Gedaliah isn't that smart. He's in fact dumb, stupid. And he allows his enemy, his sworn enemy, to get so close to him that he kills the fool. On that note, you get to eat. We've reached verse 1 of chapter 41. And in particular, the phrase seventh month that appears in that verse. Now, the seventh month would be September slash October, which would be the month of what? Loretta? (coughs) Harvest. Good. So you see the relationship between 41.1 and 40 verse 10. The sequence of the summer fruits, now the seventh month has arrived, and this is the uh, harvest season which suggests that Gedaliah was governor of the remnant of Judah for only a few weeks or a few months. The fall of Jerusalem, we dated to June slash July of 586, and here we are, September slash October of 586. These events are then coming rapid fire. There's not a long, drawn-out period of time uh, between Gedaliah's elevation to the gubernatorial chair in chapter 40 and his assassination in chapter 41. Verse 2 is a description of his death with the treachery and perfidy and bloodthirsty murder of the act. It is not only that, but you'll notice that it's a breach of hospitality. Ishmael and Gedaliah had sat down to eat bread. In Near Eastern culture, the uh, table at which one sits with a guest to eat a meal is virtually sacrosanct. Unpleasantness doesn't occur there in general. And so this is a breach of hospitality on Ishmael's part, or it was contrived to disarm Gedaliah the further, namely that he wouldn't suspect anything coming at his dinner table, and therefore it was a perfect place to kill him. 
In Ishmael, then, we not only have a murderer, we have a man who has no regard to conventions, to social conventions of hospitality and politeness. Pretending to be his friend, he cuts him down with his sword before he finishes his dinner. Brutal treachery. Now, jumping down to verses 5 to 8, we have this incident of the 80 men from Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria on their way to the house of the Lord. Is this an anachronism? The house of the Lord? Is there any house of the Lord to go to? Terry? No, it's been burned to the ground. So what are they doing? Where are they from, incidentally? What nation are they from? Shechem, northern Israel. Northern Israel. No, Shechem's not a nation. Yeah, they're, they're from the northern kingdom, or what was left of the northern kingdom. <clears throat> Why are they coming down to Jerusalem? With offerings. <coughs> Beards not shaved. Beard shaved, rather, and clothes torn. They're the signs of what, Terry? Is it possible that... Uh, they were uh, Judeans that had moved up there when Israel had been taken away. Probably not. Probably not. These are imported uh, Assyrians that have, or other mixed populations that have occupied the northern kingdom as a result of the Assyrian conquest over 150 years before. They got their beard shaved. They got their toes torn. A clothes torn. What's that a sign of? Morning. morning. They're coming with morning, right? And offerings. To a burned out temple. To the ashes of the Solomonic Temple. Why are they doing this? What's the point? Why is the story in the Bible? This is 6th century B.C. Lachvalesa, right? Solidarity movement, right? The the Dom's shipyards, the Dom's shipyards, 1980. You've forgotten that? (laughs) You shouldn't. But at any rate... um, Pardon? Could it be a sign of repentance? Not necessarily repentance, but definitely a sign of solidarity. My, My point here is they're identifying with the lamentation and the sorrow and the mourning of their brothers in Judah. Now, what are they? Our blood brothers, Semitic brothers, in the sense that they're Semites, Jewish Semites. It's impossible to tell. Nonetheless, this is a demonstration of sympathy and a demonstration of solidarity. And Ishmael murders them. Why is it in his interest to murder these 80 pilgrims? What is the gain for him in adding blood to blood? He's not only a ruthless assassin, he's a brutal butcher. Why? 
Well, would the news travel back to Babylon that he had killed the governor that, uh, that never could never He's obviously not afraid of that. He sees the threat of Gedaliah because it's a threat to his own ambition, right? What threat are these pilgrims to him? Hmm. Or are they? If there's solidarity between these northern pilgrims and these southern remnant, is there a potential danger of then a organic or corporate unity between north and south? In other words, that if Gedaliah is successful, that he will reach out to what's left in the north? And that the two remnant bodies then will be reunited. Not that the glory days of David and Solomon would return, but you'd have a reunited Jewish or Semitic state in the Levant, which would definitely be a threat to, they would be pro-Babylonian, that would be a threat to an anti-Babylonian coalition. And they would be right in the middle. They would be between you and the Ammonites and the the, the Tyrians and the Phoenicians. In other words, they would block you. They'd be a buffer state in between you and them. We can't let that happen. (laughs) I I think it just shows their ruthlessness, doesn't it? That is correct. It is only 80 men. But it is 80 men of a vanguard of a nation, a remnant nation. What's occupying Samaria, Shechem, and Shiloh? There are people up there. Okay, There's a significant population there. Nebuchadnezzar targeted Judah and Jerusalem. He didn't target the northern regions of uh, what was ancient Israel. He didn't think he had any problems there. He, He essentially didn't. But... There's a, there's, there are a body of people there. And consequently, <coughs> it is, uh, Pete's right, ruthlessness is certainly here. But there's more than ruthlessness here. Ishmael doesn't do anything without a political purpose. He is an agent of a foreign kingdom. He is an Ammonite, uh, <coughs> uh, uh, he's an Ammonite assassin. He's also an Ammonite player. He knows what's in Baalus's mind. Now, what does he do with these bodies? In the place that King Asa had built. Very good. I gave you the dates of Asa and Baasha that you can see how far before this event uh, that uh, battle was was fought between those two kings. You can go back and read that uh, in uh, early part of uh, Second Kings. <clears throat> but in any event, why does he throw these bodies into that cistern? He wants to show disdain. Mm, not entirely. It was big. Hide them. To what? It was big. It was big. <laughs> I said hide them. Hide them? Worse than that. What's in the cistern? Mud. Probably not. Water. 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 Why does he do it? Poison. Poison the water. Poison the water source. Correct. He throws the bodies in the cistern to poison the water source. 
because this is probably the large cistern that feeds Mizpah. Now, there's some suggestion that archaeologists discovered this cistern back in the 1920s. That has been a little bit debated, so I'll leave it out there for uh, consideration, uh, further elaboration. Nonetheless, um, the the reason for doing this is to make the water useless. All right, now, skipping down then to verse 17, unless there's anything in between that you'd like to ask about uh, this uh, mention of Geruth Kimham and the source of this uh, language or this location. As you can tell, it's near Bethlehem, and it doesn't show up on any map because it's actually not a large village. It's probably just a stopover place, uh, a, a lodging villa. It goes back to Barzillai in 2 Samuel 19. You remember the old man Barzillai who came to the Jordan when David was escaping from the wrath of his son Absalom. Absalom had chased him out of Jerusalem, chased him towards the steps of Jericho, and David would end up on the other side of the Jordan in in that dense underbrush on the opposite side of the Jordan River. But in order to get over, he needed, in order to get over the river, he needed rafts and fording devices, and Barzillai, uh, the old man, helped him do that. David was so grateful to Barzillai for his help that he offered him membership in the royal family on David's return to Jerusalem. And you may remember Barzillai's famous reply, no, I want to die in my own bed. I'm too old. And so he uh, deferred the uh, the gift that David offered uh, to his son, his son Kimham. And here in this passage, we now know, as Second Samuel 19 does not tell us, we now know what that gift was. The gift was a small piece of land or perhaps a small lodging place or very small villa which was used as a lodging place, and now uh, Johanan and those whom he has rounded up are staging themselves there, excuse me, in order to go down into Egypt. Notice in this narrative that we've had two staging areas. At the opening of chapter 40, we've had a staging area in Ramah to go off to Babylon. Here at the end of 41, we have a staging area at Kimham, Uh, going off to Egypt. Now, let's look back over the entire epilogue and ask some questions about narrative ripples, dramatic echoes, deja vu motifs. First, there is obvious deceit here. Treachery, death on account of the refusal to listen. The refusal to listen. Narrative ripple, deja vu motif. 
Gedaliah refuses to listen to Johanan when he warns him of Ishmael's plot against his life. Ishmael won't listen to Nebuchadnezzar. Obviously, he's not going to allow Gedaliah to remain Nebuchadnezzar's choice. And Johanan won't listen to Jeremiah eventually. That's in front of us, but nonetheless, he bears the characterization of a man who won't listen as Gedaliah won't listen, as Ishmael won't listen. We have narrative characterization of a consistent paradigm in these individuals. They will not listen. The antithesis in the narrative epilogue, the contrast, as I pointed out at the structure of these uh, narratives at the beginning, the antithesis is Jeremiah. That's the reason he does not appear in the second act of this opening narrative epilogue. He listens. He listens to God and he serves God. And that's one of the reasons that I think it's important to observe that the Lord God's name is invoked in that section in which Jeremiah appears. Chapter 40, verses 1 to 6, the Lord's name is not invoked in Act 2, chapter 40, verse 7 to 41, 18. Narrative ripples of antithetical narrative contrast. Second, notice the apparent dread or fear. The apprehension, suspicion, distrust. The distrust in Ishmael. He does not fear Babylonians. I'm sorry, Ishmael does fear the Babylonians. Gedaliah does not. Gedaliah should fear Ishmael, but Gedaliah does not distrust Ishmael. The people should not fear the Babylonians, as Gedaliah points out in chapter 40, verse 9. But in fact, the people do fear and distrust the Babylonians, as the last verse of chapter 41, verse 18 indicates. Narrative ripples of contrasting characterization. Trust and distrust. Fear and suspicion. Dread and apprehension or the lack thereof. All of these patterns build up the characterization of the three individuals who stand at the center of this second act. They are conflicted characters. They are conflicted characters. Gedaliah, benevolent as we noted, encouraging. Gedaliah is naive. He's unsuspecting. He is a fool that one of royal blood would be using him. 
working him, playing him for a fairly well. Gedaliah is a dupe. He is fooled by one close to him because of that one's royal pedigree. Those who refuse to judge righteous judgment, those who refuse to judge righteous judgment to such fools, God will visit their foolishness on their own heads, and Gedaliah receives that judgment. Ishmael. Ishmael, conflicted character, a royal prince who is a despicable assassin, a cold-blooded and ruthless murderer, and as he is twice over a bloody killer, he is twice over a perfidious liar. Ishmael has no redeeming qualities in the characterization of this narrative. But what of Johanan? Apparently wise, apparently perceptive, apparently a man who is on guard with his ear to the ground for conspiracies, a man who is willing to warn those in authority of the danger that lurks right at their elbow, He perceives a hidden agenda. He understands what's going on in the heart of the potential assassin. He's got him nailed. He warns Gedaliah, you're being played. And yet, Johanan moves tangentially himself in the very same bloody circle that Ishmael runs in. Using that, I'll defend your gubernatorial chair and life as a justification for his own bloody ambitions of assassinating the assassin. And then he defends and rescues the captives, verse 16 of chapter 41. He defends and rescues those that Ishmael had captured from Mizpah. And yet, he doesn't do this for eudaimonistic reasons. He does it for reasons of his own hidden agenda, as we shall see, because he takes that group and forces them down into Egypt, a place from which he is warned by God not to go. Johanan is a conflicted character as well. The only unconflicted character in this narrative epilogue is the one who remains off camera. The one who remains out of the spotlight. The one who is of a different order, a different character than the dramatis personae of Act Two. Jeremiah remains. Jeremiah 
remains and identifies. The prophet identifies with the exiles, even suffering their bonds and chains. Jeremiah participates in the exile and in its suffering. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah is vindicated. <coughs> Jeremiah is vindicated by Nebuchadnezzar's agent, the Nebuchadnezzar The Gentile, notice the Gentile declares that the Jewish prophet speaks the truth. The Gentile says he's the truth teller. While the Jews call him a false prophet. Jeremiah remains. Jeremiah remains and stands in the narrative outside of the treachery. Outside of the deceit. Outside of the murderous bloodshed. Jeremiah stands in antithesis. Jeremiah, in antithesis to the conflicted characters of the drama, his character, God-formed. His character, God-reflective. His character, God-protected. Jeremiah remains. Remains steadfast. Remains devoted. Remains the faithful Ebed Yahweh, servant of the Lord. Jeremiah remains the same even after the fall of Jerusalem. And now he is perched on the edge of descending into Egypt. Ah, Jeremiah going down into Egypt. Any questions? Then you are welcome to go. And remember, do not return next Thursday, but two weeks from tonight, and we will resume with chapters 42 to 45.